0: Hello
1: and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 133, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. On our first show of August. Eight months into 2018. You know, I've got a nightmare that I'm going to wake up like tomorrow and it's going to be like 2055 and I'll be in the nursing home. And you'll still be doing the retro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, trying to wire up my old video. I'm Dan Wood. <laughs> Get off my lawn. <laughs> but of course, we have got a very busy month coming up now. Uh, next week is now be on the train, London Bound.
0: Oh, God, I can't wait, man these guests that we've got coming to play london and the panels that people are going to see are just going to be insane i can't i can't believe we're doing a nightmare one for a start That's well just awesome.
1: this is going to be massive next week the ultimate retro gaming show play expo lands in london first show that we've done in the capital this isn't it um at the print works now it's happening next weekend on the 11th and 12th of august if you've never been to a play expo event before i'd say make this the one that you come to
0: Definitely, this is going to be the big one, isn't it? Because we're,
1: we're launching in the capital and also
0: there's going to be Play Blackpool as well later this year. So there's two events going on, one one up north and one in the capital.
1: And we are the official podcast of Play Expo, so we do all the talks there throughout the weekend and I think we're doing about, is it like four a day, isn't it? Four on Something, Saturday, four something on Sunday, like that, so yeah. We've got a week to prep, it'll be fine.
0: Oh, the Oliver Twins run it themselves.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but we've got Archie McLean's going to be joining us as well. And you remember like International Karate, Archie McLean's pool, Jimmy White Snooker. Oh yeah, that, that was one of the best old-school accurate pool games, wasn't it? Though? And we got the uh, SEGA artist Duncan Gutteridge, um, who's going to do workshops on how to draw Sonic. Oh, cool. If you ever wanted to know that. Uh, the Oliver Twins are going to be there as well. John Hare. Yeah, Mike Montgomery from the uh, Bitmap Brothers, who we've done like, we did a show with Mike years ago on the show, didn't we, when we first started? Yeah. And uh, we hung, up, hung around with them, Amiga 30, I think it was, in Peace. He's Pittsburgh.
0: such a nice dude, and you know, he knows all about those titles, because Bitmap basically went from the Amiga onto kind of PC and onto PlayStation stuff, but then kind of died off, but they had some. Awesome titles. Do you remember Z? Oh yeah. Z.
1: Chaos Engine? Yeah, uh, yeah. What a legendary game. So um can't cannot wait to do that panel. First time we've done a panel with him as well. Though. I think yeah. it's going to be really cool. Mr Biffo, uh, you know, if you watch Digitizer on Teletext back in the day, he's relaunched that as like a new video kind of format. So Well, he's got a whole show, hasn't he? Yeah. He's,
0: he's got like hosts and oh, they're, they're filming live at the moment. It's going to be interesting to
1: see that. And Andrew Hewson, the founder of Houston Consultants, legendary label back in the 80s, is back now. Games like Uridium, Cybernoid, uh, Paranoid, Exelon, Nebulous. This is interesting because... We We've had Rob
0: Hooson on before, who is the kind of younger son who's continuing the company now. But having Andrew is just fantastic because it's
1: like the original Hooson back. Well, even like you know, 21st Century Entertainment, you did off that pinball fantasy. Yeah, yeah. And pinball Dreams, you know, those were amazing games. And uh, finally, on our stage at the uh, Play Expo event next weekend, we're going to have a panel all about Nightmare.
0: Oh, yes. And we have got... uh some experts from Nightmare.com joining
1: us as well, so it's going to be really good fun, that one is. Well, we've got Hugo, who played Trayguard on Nightmare. Now, for anyone outside the UK, you can actually watch most of Nightmare on YouTube, I think. Most episodes are on there. And this was, I mean, it was kind of a, a Dungeons & Dragons kind of game, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it was It was on kids' TV. It was kind of for the kids, but um, it, I loved it, you know. And it, and it had all that traditional kind of role-play element of... Go forwards, go left, and yeah. you know a team directing a character in in a dungeon.
1: But it was all computer generated as well. And you think Nightmare began in 1987, and it ran for 112 episodes. Those graphics for the day were groundbreaking. Yeah, First that, time you'd ever seen anything like that. Talking about that, they must have spent ages on it. Do you remember like, the walls would come to life and start talking and everything, yeah, wouldn't they? Yeah. It was nuts. And I can't wait to meet Guard. I'm going to be the most starstruck I've ever been. At wait, wait for Dan's <laughs>
0: selfie with Traegard.
1: That's going to <laughs> Or At least one selfie. There's going to be loads of selfies with Guard, I'm sure. So if you haven't got a ticket yet, it's going to be happening next weekend in London. Play Expo. We are so excited about this at the Printworks. And if you can't make it down, of course, we will be broadcasting uh, some of the panels from Play Expo on the Retro Hour podcast in coming weeks and on YouTube as well, so keep an eye for that. sure, there'll be videos everywhere. Now, on this week's show, we do have an interesting guest from back in the day, Alternative Software. Yes, we have Roger Hulley from Alternative Software, and these guys have
0: been going for 33 years. Can you believe that? They're still going throughout all the changes of technology, of programs, and they're actually doing a re-release of School Days, which is
1: one of the original old school games. And that is an achievement, 33 years in the computer and gaming epic. industry. Yeah, I mean, he started when it was like, you know, Atari VCS consoles and then obviously Spectrums and Commodore 64s with cassette duplication that he did at home actually for a while, didn't he? Set his own duplication plant up. And now they're still going releasing iPhone games and on Steam. So what a change he's seen in 33 years of this industry.
0: Totally. And we're going to be talking about School Days, which is your classic kind of British game here. It's got the uh, elements of great. Range Hill, the Bass yeah. kids, and all all these naughty school kids in a very sensible, posh British school where they pea-shoot the teachers.
1: It's well, it great. All the things you wanted to do at school, but you could never get away with, you could yeah. do it in this game, couldn't you? Wreck the
0: chalkboards, just <laughs> run around everywhere.
1: But I loved Alternative as well. You mean, as a kid growing up with like, you know, didn't get much pocket money. The fact they released games, like Mastertronic as well, were the same, and Codemasters. Yeah, I think he said they um, own 19% of the market
0: of the budget market at the
1: time. Yeah, I mean, it's understandable because those were the games that you could afford with your own pocket money. So they did a big service to kids back in the 80s and 90s. So looking forward to this one. Roger Hulley from Alternative Software is going to be this week's special guest on the Retro Hour podcast. We'll be talking to him in about 15 minutes from now. Now, we have got some new stories um, that you're going to find really interesting in just a minute. We're going to, need to talk about Andy Warhol's Amiga. There's been a new development on that that you might not be too happy with, Ravi. Um, and also... Craig Charles did a Nintendo video that's been rediscovered. Possibly not the proudest moment of his career, but we'll talk more about that in just a second. Oh, God, I've (laughs) seen worse. (laughs) But, of course, if you do want to keep the Retro Hour podcast going week in, week out, uh, we do rely on your donations to help us out with the running of the show. Uh, Every penny, every pound, every euro, every dollar, every cent that we get into the pot all goes back into the running of the Retro Hour. And you can make a donation if you'd like to. Uh, We do say all the time, it's a tip jar it is completely optional, but if you'd like to put something in there, it does really help us out a lot.
0: Any currency,
1: any cryptocurrency, you know, it's all available on our sites. Yes, yeah, so all you've got to do is head to theretrohour.com. There's a PayPal link up there as well. And just for making a donation, big or small, they're all big in our heart, aren't they? Definitely. You'll find your place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Just like this week, thank you so much to Mark Heslop. Darren Coles. Patrick McGinty and Ben Litchfield who all made donations into the running of the Retro Hour podcast and you can do the same at theretrohour.com I love Craig Charles Craig Charles <laughs> yeah, I love <laughs> Craig Charles he was he was like
0: my hero when I was a kid I thought he was absolutely amazing as Lister because yeah. if you remember he did that um, anarchistic poetry wasn't he he was like a- I'm an anarchist that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's how he kind of started out and then It was on Channel 4. I think it was on the Ben Elton show. It was a really late night one. And then he kind of got into sci-fi. And he he became the default guy for computers at one point, didn't he? He was like, oh, God, on this awful medieval 3D show where you had to control troops and no one knew what was going on. And (laughs) Craig Charles was running around like, there's a battalion coming.
1: (laughs) And then Robot Wars, of course. Yeah, Yeah. Robot
0: Wars after that, yeah.
1: Well, it turns out that in 1993, I mean, you remember the um, Super Mario All-Stars pack. I totally
0: remember the All-Stars pack because I had that choice. I came into the shop when I was a kid and my dad was like, right, you can buy this stuff. And I'd always wanted Nintendo because I'd seen it. And there was an Amiga CD32, a PlayStation, and an All-Stars pack, Mario All-Stars. So I was like, I don't care about Amiga anymore. Mario All-Stars, and my dad said... Well, it's a cartridge. You're not getting that. Get the PlayStation, and it was a wise move, Dad. <laughs> In thank hindsight, you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> but it
1: was appealing till really late on, actually. And even now, if I see one of the All Stars packs at like a retro gaming event, you look at it and it had great artwork, didn't it? And visually, it just looked like such a great product. But I mean, it turns out it didn't sell itself. In 1993, Nintendo UK hired Craig Charles to promote the super mario all-stars pack
0: so this was a a promotional video that craig charles did and i guess this would maybe be put in stores and stuff like that you wouldn't have got it with the all-stars pack
1: no which is weird to think of because i mean in the uk back then we had four tv channels Mm, channel one two three and four that was it bbc one two itv and channel four and it's not like now or like it was in america back then where overnight you kind of get like you know promotional videos playing all night on telly, wouldn't you? You didn't really get that here. I mean, TV stations used to close down at like midnight, one in the morning, Yeah, didn't they? And,
0: and you know, Craig Charles was the bee's knees then because he was in Red Dwarf, which was like the hottest thing around.
1: Yeah, but I, I imagine that they've had these playing in shops... Oh, I remember getting a, an Apple promotional video that you'd have to like, send off a format of a magazine to post to it in the, it's, in the mail. It's
0: probably Nintendo thought, right, we need to shift these. How are we going to do that? We can't hire staff to go in. Let's <laughs> do a video with Craig Charles and play that.
1: That'll get the kids' attention. Well, do you want to hear a little bit of this video featuring oh, Craig Charles? Uh, now, this has been uploaded um, by a Nintendo fan called Chris and He's put this on YouTube, ripped it from VHS. And here is Craig Charles in the 1993 Nintendo UK promo. In a Nintendo spaceship. Of course. Right then, thrill seekers, here we go. We've got some amazing insider information for you game wizards. Not off. We've got reviews of the latest games and what the experts think of those games. We've got a visitor hotline city and what it all means. The Mario story where, why, and how did a little Italian with a moustache become a worldwide superstar? We've got tips and tricks on the latest software and we get to the bottom of how the game's writers invent a Super Nintendo game. And we look at some of the excellent gear that you. Obviously, you're sponsored by Nintendo. (laughs) I can't imagine many of the games get bad reviews in this, if I'm honest. I think
0: this is quite interesting because they talk about the hotline yeah nintendo hotline now that was just a thing to make money out of kids wasn't it you know the tips and cheats hotline so obviously they're trying to turn it into a big thing oh i've got to ring the experts you know i bet that was like pound a minute or something <laughs> well you back then you couldn't just google it though could you? no you couldn't no it was schoolyard knowledge or, or one rich on, kid ringing the hotline i guess. or go on
1: games master yeah <laughs> it's like yeah you didn't have many other options to get the cheats for the games, then, but I love that. I mean, that is so nineties marketing, isn't it? Watching that video. Oh yeah, and just the phrases that you, you gaming wizards and stuff. <laughs> like that. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. It, it is amazing. And I mean, even just watching that clip there, I, I just want to sit down and watch that whole video now. It's about I, just, hard, I, I just want to remix it. <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> yeah, get one of your uh, Amiga decks with those uh, Craig Charles <laughs> mods on there. But the, I mean, the nineties—it was such a great time for marketing. And remember, do you remember the Rick mail. Um, Nintendo promos as well. Yeah, totally. They they were crazy, yeah. And obviously you had like Sega Pirate TV and it just seemed so exciting back then, the, the video game marketing. So, yeah, it's nice to see a bit that preserved on YouTube. Totally. I guess now they leave the YouTubers just to do it for them. <laughs> it does not seem a bit safe and corporate these days, their video game marketing, doesn't it? It does. I mean, we had that one with, you know, Sonic Mania, the recent promo that did of that. That's kind of a throwback to the old days. Yeah, that
0: was really interesting, yeah. seeing the kind of old VHS style that they did. And they
1: and they fully recreated all of that, didn't they? Bring back the Attitude Era, I think, of video games. <laughs> we want chewed. Turn your baseball cap backwards. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's talk about something that you're not going to like, Ravi. Someone's butchered an Amiga One Thousand. They haven't.
0: They haven't. This is this is the thing. Dan sent me this. Like they've butchered the Amiga One Thousand. I was like, what the hell? They've butchered it, but they haven't. They've uh, basically this is the Andy Warhol Museum now. Andy Warhol had lots of Amigas for touring. Okay. So he had decommissioned parts. Now I don't know what decommission means. Maybe they've looked at it and they've gone. This is decommissioned and then just chucked it when it could be repaired.
1: Well, let's give a bit of background for people who might not know. What, what's the connection between Andy Warhol? So, he was a famous artist in the 80s, so camel soup.
0: Uh, very famous artist. And basically, Amiga came out and it was the machine with many colours. Mm. I think it was 14 million colours or something like that. So Andy Warhol basically used, uh, I think it was Graphicraft, which was the early one. And when the Amiga was launched, he did a, a bit of Amiga art, capturing uh, Deborah Harry.
1: at at the launch event at the
0: launch yeah yeah. so he did that and he had a few of these machines so the andy warhol museum have got hold of these now they've kind of butchered it like i work in the um, art and museum industry and we have a very strict rule in the uk which is if you're displaying something like vhs or you're displaying something like of the time it must be displayed in that format
1: In the original format. In the
0: original format. So we'll have CRT monitors, we'll have all the original stuff. Now, what they've done is they've taken decommissioned Amiga 1000s, which I'm not sure what decommission means. Ones that are not used anymore, I'd... I i do not know, but someone could have just looked at it and gone, oh, that's that's decommissioned. You know, there's no official kind of line with that. They could have all been repairable. And these things are incredibly rare. So what they've done is they've taken the Amiga 1000, they've taken the lovely CRT out, And they've replaced it with an LCD screen.
1: See, now that fits my definition of budget it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, for me it does. They've also um, kind of put internals inside for a PC. So they've ripped out the Amiga's motherboard. They've ripped out the Amiga's motherboard, which, to be fair, as you said to me, they could have just replaced the capacitors on the motherboard and it would have lasted
1: a very long time. Probably longer than a modern PC board. I mean, generally, you know, since like lead-free solder came in and stuff's made a lot more disposable now. I mean, I think the average PC motherboard for me normally gets a bit flaky after about five years. Yeah. Whereas I've got, you know, hardware from the 80s still that runs great. You've got to do a bit of maintenance on it, like you said, recapping it, you know, maybe a new power supply in there. But they've essentially took out all the original hardware.
0: Now, this isn't the first time that this has kind of happened with this group. Um, It's the Carnegie Mellon uh, University Computer Group.
1: This group it's Ion Tank. This is a website that we're looking on here, isn't it? Yeah, and
0: basically, I remember they had a project where they were trying to get the discs and get the original images off the discs. And there's this uh, great piece of hardware that everyone knows called Cairoflux, where you can just do it very quickly. What
1: What's that do then, Cairo
0: Cairoflux just takes a disc image off anything. Yeah. Any old school disc.
1: Regardless of the format.
0: Yeah, straight away. And has a great program for doing it and is like the standard. They built all these crazy custom PCs, spent thousands of pounds on it. So yeah, they, they've kind of got a history of this madness. Um <laughs> <laughs> and i i think it's crazy because they, they they've said they want it to be used all day yeah so they've set up an emulator on there uh to recreate the slow disk access and lag <laughs> of the program but i know for a fact that at nasa they kept amigas on for 15 years yeah well they ran constantly the... every day they were processing planets yeah and the maps of planets and Yeah, to kind of say that, oh, no, it's not going to last, it kind of, I think it just shows a bit of lack of knowledge. Ignorance. Ignorance, regarding the computer. And I know some people are going to say, oh, this looks like a nice job, actually, and they've done a nice conversion.
1: But no, displayed in CRT, that's what I think. (laughs) I think if there were no Amiga 1000s left in the world, that would be a great way to do it. I I mean, looking at it as a hardware mod, They've done a very good job. How many museums have
0: you been to in the UK where they've got all the original hardware that are running and there's no problem and they've got them on all day?
1: Oh, there are, there are museums dedicated to that. Yeah, exactly. museums all around the world.
0: Exactly. So, so I don't
1: know why they've done this. It does seem a bit weird. I mean, there have been some people who've been like, you know, in, in forums and stuff saying... Uh, Maybe they got like a, an art scanner grant and they had to spend the money. I don't, I don't know how it works.
0: Yeah, I, I think the American art model is very different uh, to the UK's because, of course, we're publicly funded. Yeah. And then our art model is very different to Germany where they've got huge public funding on art. So, you know, there's there's different scales. It's all private investors in America, isn't it? So.
1: But being guys that respect the legacy of machines, and you know we love the Amiga, we've, we've made no secret of that on the show before, it does kind of pain me to see that they've essentially ripped out the internals and the soul of that machine. And, put and they're like not a, even
0: using the original keyboard over.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a different keyboard. It's an yeah. Amiga 2000 keyboard they've got there as well. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, it would have been so easy just to use the original hardware. I, I just think it's unnecessary. So um, I'm sure there'll be people that think different. But if you want to find out more about that, I mean, looking at it, it does look like a good mod. They've done it well for what they've done. The <laughs> <is>. <laughs> so we'll put a link in the show notes at theretrohour.com if you can take the pain of looking at it. Now, tell us about this Halo TV series, then. What's, what's been happening oh, here? Halo, that's a bit too modern for our podcast,
0: isn't it? Now, 2001. 2001. 21st
1: century. <laughs> yeah. Um, Halo
0: is very interesting, because Halo was one of the first kind of machinima series. And yeah, do you know what machinima is, Dan? Not really. I've machinima is making a film using a video game. So okay. people who make these films in GTA Five, who make these films in uh, the Source Engine, and all of this kind of stuff. Well, It looks like Showtime are actually going to do a digital series uh, called Halo Nightfall. And I I find that's quite interesting. I've seen there's been lots of films about Halo. But the original series was uh, called Red vs. Blue. Okay. And that was literally, like, I think it's up to season 17 or 18. It was by Rooster Teeth, uh, who are a really big kind of, um, you know, blogging site. And they have lots of channels
1: was that like a Halo spin-off, like series, then on on YouTube, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it was kind of a comic, yeah, a comic hilarious. science fiction web series they called it, and uh, it's it's really old, and it was uh, premiered in two thousand and three. Oh, before YouTube, one. then, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I remember actually going to a Machinima festival and seeing this up on the screen, and uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people that can actually tell me a lot more about it, but I found it really interesting that there's now a full commissioned Showtime television series coming out when the fans were kind of doing it in 2003.
1: Well, there hasn't been talk about a proper like Halo series like this for many years. I mean, I'm looking at this article here on The Verge, and they're talking about... Um you know, they were talking about this back in 2013. Um, apparently a collaboration with Steven Spielberg at the time that was part of their Xbox Live plans. Because I know Xbox now is obviously more than just a gaming brand. They've got like video on there on their own, like trying to be a bit like Netflix, I guess. Yeah, I and, and, it and
0: it's really interesting, the story of Halo, because that kind of came from Bungie, yeah. which came from the Mac. You know, it's, yeah. it's a real weird kind of development how Halo became the lead title coming out for the Xbox.
1: And there's a Halo Nightfall as well by Ridley Scott. I mean, Halo's a big franchise, though, as well. and Huge. It is. I mean, yeah. you look at it, it's kind of like similar like Stargate or Star Trek. You get a lot out of it. You can How many movies. retro shows have you been to and Master Chief is walking past you? Oh, you if, I, if I see just one Master Chief at a retro gaming show, I'm surprised. <laughs> <laughs> there's always a few around. Uh, but it does look good. I mean, apparently there's going to be 10 episodes of this. So um, it is coming up soon. I think, it, it, again, it is. You could get a lot out of the Halo franchise. Yeah, and...
0: I think you should kind of look back at the red and blue and the machinima stuff, because that's really interesting.
1: Well, they're on YouTube now, so if you want to find those, they will put them. And the rest of the stories that we've talked about on our website, theretrohour.com, in this week's show notes. And this was a nice little find. Ada Lovelace. For people who might not know who she is, give us a bit of background on Ada. Uh, Ada Lovelace is the
0: daughter of, actually, uh, the local Lord Byron, who uh, presided at Newstead Abbey. And uh, she she was... Far, 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 far ahead of her time, basically. 200 years ahead of her time. Yeah, she was digitally programming uh, 200 years ago, thinking of all these things before computers actually came out. And she worked with Charles Babbage, who did the Difference Engine, which was one of the first computers, really. And uh, this book contains the world's first uh, computer algorithm. Now, this book is 175 years old. 175 years old, yeah.
1: And it's an absolute piece of history, this is. So essentially you're talking about the first written down computer code. Yeah. The first programme. Yeah, the first programme.
0: Yeah, and you can actually see the computer code on some of these uh, things. And the way that they've done it is it's it's all kind of individual switches with the uh, difference engine. You can actually go to the London Science Museum and see part of the difference engine. And it's just insane that people were thinking this far ahead. Can you imagine there's going to be someone walking around at the moment who's writing something that's far beyond us, you know, that maybe in at a hundred, 175 years, it may be sold for thousands.
1: Well, this has recently on an auction. That's the reason we're talking about it in the news. It's sold for £95,000. So that's $125,000. Uh, which, you know, for something that's so historically significant, is actually not a bad price, really. Yeah, for something uh, published in 1843. Yeah. And this was just found in a, a a box of books owned by a couple in the Cotswolds apparently. Oh. So. Well, I think everybody should watch
0: any of the films and documentaries on Ada Lovelace because, mm. you know, she was pretty much the inventor of computer programming. And it's great, you know, they say there's not that many women in tech. Well, a lot of women <laughs> were the computers pioneers uh, really, originally, they? Yeah,
1: yeah, and absolutely. were also programming before. And she yeah. died at 36. I mean, she was very young. You know, she did all this in her 20s. Well, probably hanging around with Lord Byron, you know. <laughs> Rubbed off a bit. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to have a look more about that, I mean, she's very interesting. Uh, and you, you've you put me onto a few like movies and documentaries about her in the past as well. So uh, we'll link those up as well. Now, before we get into our interview with Roger Holly, would you say you're addicted to video games? Um, it's not a nice I, phrase, I, is it? I, Addiction. I, I wasn't addicted.
0: Uh, maybe as a teenager, I was addicted to going home chatting to my friends on the thing and kind of the community I was probably addicted to that more than IRC yeah IRC but also on TeamSpeak and stuff like that
1: well it's quite interesting is they've now said that video game addiction has been recognized as a real condition so this is the world health organization who've um, called it gaming disorder and apparently now it's been registered in the International Classification of Diseases, saying that it is possible to be addicted to video games. Now, reading that, that's not a surprise, because it's possible to get addicted to anything. Yeah, and, you know, I I hear it's
0: really bad in Japan Mm. and China, and they've actually had, you know, detox programs. I I saw a very horrible documentary about how they were doing electrolysis on people for addiction and stuff. I think that's not right. Mm. But, you know, I think treating it as an actual... Illness is a, a good way to go about
1: it. I think there's a difference, though. I mean, you can play something a lot and not be addicted to it, but there is a, there is a difference. I mean, I, I guess it's the stage when it's completely taken over your life at the expense of other things. But, but also they're, desi- they're designed to be addictive.
0: Yeah. You know, so it's easy to fall into that trap. You know, especially with like Candy Crush and all these ones where you get like rewards for gaming or even World of Warcraft and stuff like that. Those It's designed to hook you in and designed to make you play as long as possible. So I'm really not surprised that people are falling into, you know, bad ways when it comes to video games.
1: And I guess, you know, now because games are so big and you've got these massive online communities as well Mm. where you can essentially live in them. 20, yeah, 70, exactly, yeah. If you can, you know. Oh, I did for a couple of years, yeah. <laughs> I remember that time, Robbie, yeah. <laughs> and a massive beard. <laughs> Took your virtual reality head. what year is this? Robin Williams. <laughs>
0: massive belly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it goes without saying. Uh, but, I mean... I guess it is a serious thing, I mean, and anyone can get addicted to anything if you've got the right mindset for it, I suppose. Totally, but
0: and if they're designed to
1: trigger all those uh, endorphins in your brain, then, you know. But again, I mean, it's better than being addicted to gambling or smoking or alcohol or something, I guess, isn't it, you know, in many Crack. ways. Crack. <laughs> <So>, yeah, <laughs> it could be a lot worse. Uh, but I, I think it's like anything, you've got to have a healthy balance. I wish I had time to get addicted to video games. Yeah, all we do <laughs> is
0: talk about video games. Now, that's, that's the cure for video games addiction, do a podcast.
1: Yeah, yeah, I haven't played a game for about three years. <laughs> <laughs> So if you don't read more, it is an interesting article and I know opinions will fall uh, both side of the fence on that one, but we'll put a link to that in this week's show notes as well. And that is, of course, a place where you can check out our back catalogue because we do get people who often say to us, I forget, why do you get this guy in the podcast? And we're like, oh, episode 36.
0: That's it. Well, I, I, I'm, at the moment, I'm working on a big guest page where every single guest is going to have a face and you can click on that and then straight to their episode. So.
1: 133 guests is a lot <laughs> yeah i've got to process that all manually it's going to be great for <laughs> oh that, that'll be a fun i was gonna say weekend month yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah you can check out our back catalogue i mean there are so many interesting guests that we've had on the podcast if you do have a spare couple of <laughs> I was say couple of hours a couple of days a couple of weeks uh, have a little look back at the retrohour.com the same place that you can get our social media links as well we're on facebook instagram twitter our discord channel as well where we do hang out and chat about video games when we're not talking about them on the podcast so you got all of those on our website definitely worth checking them out. and uh, if you do listen on uh, any podcast clients please do keep your reviews coming in as well they always really help get the show in front of new people right then should we talk about budget games back in the day school days back to the 80s this week's special guest all about alternative software is roger Hulley. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome this week's special guest. I'm going to find out all about the days of alternative software, classic like school days, getting reinvented for the 21st century. Welcome to the show, Roger Hulley. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Now, before we get into all that, Roger, I mean, it's always nice to get a little bit of background on, you know, what, what made you tick back in the day. I mean, do you remember what kind of first got you interested in the video games industry and where your kind of journey and all that started?
2: Yes, well, when I left university, although I got, a good, I got a degree in biological sciences, at that particular stage in time, I was getting really into music and uh, big time. I was writing for rock fanzines and things like this. And I, I was thinking like a student, I wanted to get a job where I could take home any music on a night. This was well before the days of iTunes, etc. And I thought an ideal situation would be if I could land a job uh, working for something, someone like HMV. At uh, that particular stage in time, HMV was owned by EMI and uh, I became, a, luckily enough, I got to the position of graduate trainee with EMI and uh, they moved me about all over the place and eventually I got into the HMV side of EMI and uh, ran, ran uh, certain stores and things and uh, I was poached by another record chain. And I, I ran that record chain, and at the same time, I started introducing video into that record, into the record stores there. In those days, music record shops were purely that. They sold records, they sold music-related items, such as T-shirts and uh, badges, things like that, and patches. But uh, nothing more than that. And uh, when video first came along, I thought, great, let's see if we can turn this more into an entertainment center. And uh, I introduced Video. And then from that, I started bringing in Atari VCS cartridges, and uh, and then uh, I got 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 the thoughts of uh, why not start selling computers, uh, the entertainment side, not the not the big bulky jobs that were around at the time. And I put in Atari 400 XLs. I think I've got that right, uh, if I remember correctly. And uh, Atari VCS consoles, of course. And from that, on, from that time onwards, I got the bug for computer games because it was a little bit like having, a, like the old days of music when you know you had a hit record, yeah. And you know you started off with nothing and bingo, you were climbing the charts. So I got the bug and I decided to pack in my day job and uh, started getting involved in the computer games industry.
1: So when you first saw this kind of emerging new industry, I mean, it, it must have seen, I mean, did it seem like something that was going to be around for a long time, or did it seem a bit like a fad that might kind of fade out after a couple
2: of years? No, I felt it was going to be around for a long time, and I, obviously I'd been playing a lot of cartridge games at that particular stage in time, and I could see the entertainment value, and I just thought, you know, this is, this is not going to go away. In fact, uh, what I thought was obviously it'll get, uh, it'll get bigger and bigger and bigger, which it, clearly it has done. And uh, that's, that's that was basically what, uh, what was ticking through my mind when I, when I decided to pack in my day job.
0: <laughs> well, did you have to strike a deal with Atari then?
2: Yes, we, Yes, I did. Um, funnily enough, I had to raise a lot of money to open an account with Atari and uh, Activision in those days. Uh, so much so, I robbed the piggy, piggy bank and borrowed money wherever I could. And uh, we, I bought in, at that particular stage at the time, a lot of cartridge games. And then from then onwards, I started selling those. And then that's how I got really uh, working, shall we say, in the computer games, video games uh, market.
1: Well, were you a a games player yourself, like after work?
2: Occasionally, yes. Um, When I started getting the games on the VCS cartridges, I used to obviously enjoy uh, banging away on uh, things like uh, Berserk, uh, Pitfall, uh, Yars' Revenge... Uh, Frogger, well, you name them all. I was, I was enjoying playing those particular games, and I could see the entertainment value therein. Prior to that, obviously, in the old days be- before then, I played on um, uh, nightclubs on uh, things like Pong uh, when it first came through. I can go back that far, uh, yeah. as the case is. <laughs> so and when computer games started coming through, as was improper. I obviously enjoyed playing those particular games, and uh, one that always sticks in my mind is a very simple game but called Mule, and uh, I really enjoyed playing that at that time. It was obviously something that uh, uh, stimulated me to thinking. Well, why can't why can't we or I uh, start doing computer games uh, uh, as original products, etc., as the case is.
0: So we all kind of know about Britsoft and the kind of revolution of like homemade games there. How how did you end up getting your games and then choosing which ones to distribute?
2: Right. Well. When I was in the music industry, um, there was a a label called MFP, which is Music for Pleasure, and what that used to do was basically republish albums, and I thought at that particular stage in time, a lot of product was coming out uh, at full price, but nobody was thinking about republishing it. Uh, There was a label out there called Mastertronic, and they were bringing out original products, and I just thought there was an opportunity to uh, create a label where it would involve basically taking hits or minor hits, then republishing them at a lower price point, and that's what I started off doing. Uh, although the very first title uh, that we we put out there was a game called Henry's Horde, which been which had been a program by uh, uh, a programmer called Martin Brown, who subsequently went on to uh, form Team 17. And that was the first game that uh, appeared on the alternative software label. But after that, we started getting heavily involved in uh, republishing.
0: So when you were republishing, were you kind of repackaging the whole thing, adding new labels, making it appeal to a different market than the original ones?
2: Yeah, correct. Um, we actually got a small grant from the design council to redesign a, to design a, design what the pack would be and the logo. And uh, we uh, we started w- working on the, pre- on, the precipice- on, on the idea that we would put these out at a lower price point, i.e., one ninety nine, and uh, we went from there. And we one of the first games we put out was a cricket game. It wasn't particularly good, but it was a cricket game called How's That. And I remember we tried to sell it into W H Smith, and they said no. And at that particular stage in time, it was run about Christmas, and for some reason, England was doing, did particularly well down under. And uh, then we got a phone call from, from W.H. Smith saying, yeah, we'll take that particular game, and we put that, out, put that into their stores. And uh, then we basically established a relationship with W.H. Smith, and we put in quite a lot of a lot of our titles at that, particular, at that particular stage in time.
0: Well, people kind of forget how incredibly important the packaging was back then. You know, we had Bob Wakelin on, who did a lot of the art for Ocean, mm. and it was really... To kind of attract people's attention, uh, what, what, what kind of things did you do to get people, you know, noticing your games, other than the price point as well, which was great?
2: Well, we we had, as I say, we had the design of the actual packaging, uh, what we, the layout, uh, what the layout was going to be, and we commissioned artists to actually, uh, you know, create the pictures that would hopefully portray the game uh, as it was, as as the content would be. Obviously, screenshots appeared on the back but we wanted to make the front as dynamic as possible. As, as possible. And uh, I think we succeeded. Well, I, I clearly we did. Um, when we launched, relaunched uh, games that had been previously out, uh, quite often the, the covers weren't particularly exciting in some instances. And uh, you know we, we went to town on those, and we, 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 we gave them a complete new look. And uh, because they were fresh, and, uh, and they were priced at the price point that we put them out at, uh, people did did go for them.
1: I mean, I remember being a kid. You know, buying you know cassette tapes for my Commodore, and yeah. being a kid that didn't have much pocket money, being able to get games for like that one ninety nine price range. I mean, that was really the only way that we could afford games, unless it was Christmas or birthday. So, I imagine you had a massive potential market there.
2: Yes, there was. Uh, one time we were we were we were seventeen percent of the budget market. Um, we were and. I can go back to a particular time when we did our first show as Alternative Software and I think we had seven titles in the top 25 and uh, it was it was crazy.
1: <laughs> I mean, obviously, there was you and Mastertronic. I mean, was was there like much rivalry there
2: with you two? Not with ourselves and Mastertronic, no, and uh, there was Codemasters as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were basically, there was the three of us. There were smaller labels that uh, were around, like Atlantis, etc. And uh, there are others which obviously I can list, but... Uh, uh, for the sake of your viewers and uh, readers, listeners, should I say, I will not go through a massive list of the software companies that were around at that particular stage in time. But the three main ones in the budget sector, I would say, were Mastertronic, Codemasters, and sell.
0: So, being at that price point, it, it must have been kind of hard to get the maximum amount of uh, kind of profit out of it and keep the product good. Um, what techniques did you use?
2: Well, it was a. It was when we were purchasing, obviously uh, repurchasing, should I say, to uh, to relaunch. We were we were committed to obviously creating a dynamic cover and getting it out there into the marketplace, so we uh, to the main retailers, so we could create some volume on the sales. It was all about getting the volume uh, when you're working on such tight margins as we were then. The late, I mean, we we did then eventually put out a $2.99 price point as well, uh, a yeah, really heady price there. And uh, we created a label called Summit, which we were putting out uh, games that we were get, uh, acquiring from labels like PSS, uh, games like Theatre Europe, Spitfire 40, uh, you know, games that were a little bit more, I should say, in depth. And we started putting those on that particular label. And uh, we were putting those prices out to two ninety nine. Eventually, we did step up to 2.99 dollars for most of the budget titles, but uh, uh, at the price point, we originally started off at $1.99.
0: Well, that was an interesting name for the company as well, Summit, because that was a, a, a game previously, wasn't it?
2: Summit was a card game that my father invented back in the '30s, and uh, he uh, he invented this particular card game, and uh, I just thought that would make a great name for uh, for a label. Obviously, uh, a bit of nostalgia there, but uh, the Summit was called was spelled S U M I T, with a hyphen in between. And that, but uh, we put it out at Summit with a with a nice mountain scene, et cetera. Et cetera. And uh, yeah, it was that was the reason why I called that particular label Summit.
1: Well, I remember being a kid and getting um, Phoenix. It was a massive arcade game, and I know you guys you rele- release that, didn't you, on home platforms?
2: We did. It was a it was a one man band. Uh, the label was called Mega Dodo, and it was it was trickling along quite nicely. And I decided that uh, you know with a revamp and a repush uh putting it out at 1.99 it would do well and uh, we uh, we acquired it from the developer the developer at that particular stage in time and we we put it out and uh it did very well it was spelled slightly different because in those days, um copyrights wasn't you know wasn't uh, wasn't really uh, a problem shall we say uh it wasn't raising everybody wasn't as protective at that particular stage in time so we put this game out called phoenix it was spelled with a Built deliberately incorrectly. Double E, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah Double E, <laughs> and uh, Crash, and uh, I think it was Crash. In particular, loved the game, and they'd given it really good reviews when it came out at a price point which was probably about six ninety five, I would think. And then we put it out at one ninety nine. It did very, very well.
1: Because yeah, I had it on, I mean, I, I had a Commodore Plus Four, and there wasn't a lot of good software for that platform. But I used to play that game so much because it was such a quality, um, well-written version of it as well. I mean, having the fact that you could get arcade games at home for that price point was something I'd never seen before. That
2: yes, indeed, yeah. I mean, there were there were uh, people were doing derivatives of uh, classic uh, uh, classic video games at that stage in time, like giving them all sorts of strange names. Of course, uh, things have settled down now, of course, which is great.
0: I heard um you were out of frustration you also bought a lot of duplicating equipment so was that a big task to go around setting all that up and getting the kind of gosh, duplication a big, going gosh,
2: haven't you yeah um, yes um at one particular stage in time we we were doing because we were mass uh, we were doing for, we were going for volume we uh, we realized that uh, we were it would be sensible to actually do our own duplication as well so the opportunity came along to buy a duplicator and we, we purchased that particular duplicator, set it up in our, in our uh, uh, building at that particular stage in time, and um, uh, we started duplicating our own cassettes, and, uh, and for other companies as well, because other companies then came to us, and we did their duplication as well.
1: Why did you decide to do it yourself then? Was it just like, were the, were the other duplicators too busy, or were they letting you down? Or?
2: Uh, well, really, the opportunity arose because this particular company, which was a paint company, decided that uh, this little side... Uh, operation they had for it, so du- which was duplication wasn't really uh, their main thrust and we were using them so uh, we thought w- they were going to pull out of the market we thought well great well not great but we thought well this is an opportunity for us to control our own destiny so we we thought of the fact that we like to think that we got the vertical the full vertical of it we 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 you know we, we we acquired the games we are, are we also developed them as well of course by this stage in time we can manufacture them. Uh, which is obviously keeping our costs tight, and then we can distribute them and you know that 's the way we thought about it. It was like a vertical situation. we wanted to control our, all aspects of the uh, of of the process
1: I mean I know one side uh, one one downside about the cassette tape as a format was that piracy was very easy on it Correct. Um, I mean you know every kid at school probably had a friend who had a tape to tape copier I mean having a budget label as well i mean did that affect you guys a lot then when piracy became more prevalent?
2: Yes, it did, yes it did. Uh, you know, we would find that uh, we would sell obviously increasingly less quantity uh, as a result of piracy. But, uh, you know, it's just one of those things we had to take on the chin.
1: Yeah, it always was remarkable that even like people pirate a £2 game. <laughs>
2: so, you know, I'm staggered yeah. uh, that they, you know, they do. And they still do today. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, we'll get people asking us for keys for a certain game and it's only out at a very, very cheap, cheap price. And you're thinking, well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> If you're that interested in the product, why do you, why not buy it? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it literally did it, did, it does surprise you, uh, the fact that people will, wa- will want to copy something, that even if it is put it out at a very competitive price point.
1: Well, getting back to the 8-bit days, I mean, what was your relationship like with the magazines in the UK? Because I know they were extremely important back then, weren't they?
2: Yes, there were, uh, because we were, seen, we were seen to be a budget software house. I sometimes didn't think we got the fair crack of the whip, but, uh, uh, you know, we did have uh, some titles which we eventually created, obviously developed ourselves, and uh, those particular titles, you know, we, we, got a, we got some mixed reviews, of course, everybody did, but we got some great reviews as well, so we, you know, we, we had to, uh, you know, that was it. That's the way it worked.
0: Did you get any kind of licensing agreements, uh with any like famous trademarks. I, I saw there was a picture of you with Thomas the Tank Engine at one point.
2: Yes, uh, that was very much very much the case. What happened was that uh, uh, whilst we were bringing out the re- republishing of games and deciding then at that particular stage in time to get involved in our own uh, development of games, um, I had a, my son was very young at that particular stage in time and what I wanted to do was uh, think about uh, games that he would play and when I looked around, the only titles that were really significant out there were things like the Mr. Men series by Mirosoft, and they were retailing around 10 99 which was a lot of money. And uh, I thought that for, from a parent's point of view, you know, you don't know what uh, if, if your child is going to enjoy the game, and you really you don't want to be investing in that sort of sum. So uh, I thought that if we put out children's games at $1.99, uh, there could be a marketplace. So we... We approached uh, Britt Allcroft, who at that time owned Thomas the Tank Engine. Uh, she turned us down uh, first. So we then went to uh, see the BBC, who controlled uh, Postman Pat through Woodland Animations. And uh, we got the license to do Postman Pat. We put Postman Pat out at one ninety nine And I think it was like number one for six months, something like that, on the budget market. It did very well. We got an award for it. And uh, we then went back to Thomas Tank Engine, uh, Britt Allcroft, and we—they uh, said yes because they originally turned it down because they thought that all computer games were violent, and obviously uh, uh, that isn't, wasn't the way we were going to portray uh, those particular characters. And they could see what we did with Thomas, with Possum Pat and thought, "Yeah, why not?" So we uh, we did we uh, we acquired the license for Thomas Tank Engine, and then we acquired uh, other licenses, classic British characters like Sooty and Sweep, the Wombles. Uh, Huxley Pig, I'm trying to think of them all. You did
1: Count Duckula as well, didn't you?
2: Yeah, we did yeah. Count Ducula. Uh, with, uh, because we had done Danger Mouse, which we'd acquired from Creative Sparks when Creative Sparks went under. So we had Danger Mouse out there. So we then uh, uh, thought about Cosgrove Hall and we went to uh, pick up the license for Count Ducula.
1: And they were big cartoons. And I mean, you've got to think, then we had four channels on TV. You know, they got millions and millions of viewers at tea time, these, these shows. So, I mean, I guess in terms of an advert for the game... That must have been invaluable.
2: Indeed it was. And that was one of the reasons why we got involved in licensing because we thought from a marketing point of view we could start throwing money at marketing and hopefully trying to get a, a product that was, you know, shall we say, that was, was unknown uh, to a situation where it would be taken up by the general public. But the logic, the other logic to that was, well, why not get a license where the marketing to a certain degree has been done for you? People would know about that particular character or character's and uh, that's, that's, that's one of the reasons why we, went getting, we got involved heavily in licensing. And
0: I guess, like, kids would go and buy a full title really expensively. Their parents would give it to them. But if they were going out as a consumer themselves and buying something, it would be something that they've been watching on TV all the time. So they might be able to pester their parents more or kind of, you know, buy it themselves.
2: Uh, yeah, pester power obviously came in. Yes, it was good, that respect. And of course, parents didn't really mind if it was the price points that we were putting the games out at. Because you know they were, uh, they were they were very competitively priced, and it was a it was a, yeah you' got one heck of a lot of entertainment for your one ninety nine
1: I mean a bit later on you kind of um moved into like kind of serious software as well. you did like a, a paint studio um product as well in the nineties
2: we did we actually one of our first products was a paint studio we did mm. a, a product called Artmaster, which we put out onto the Summit label and uh, we we moved away from that being you know, on concentrated on games and then uh, uh, I can't remember exactly how it happened now. We, uh, we had the Thomas Tank Engine license, and we were thinking of other things we could do other than games. Um, it came to, came to mind that why not do an everlasting coloring book? Now, these things are obviously well, well, well produced now, but at that particular stage in time, it was only, it, it wasn't, there was nothing around there. So we created this uh, electronic, uh, as we called it, uh, uh, paint and create type product. And we did that for Tom's Tank Engine, and then we did it for other character licenses as well. And, of course, it worked well with children's licensing.
0: Well, you mentioned kind of characters there, and uh, the, the game that we're going to be talking about is uh, your remastered version of School Days, and it really reminded me of the kind of Bass Street Kids and, the, uh, you know, the Beano, Grange Hill kind of style of characters and really fit into that time period as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. When we repackaged school days, we, um, we, we bought Microsphere's back catalogue, the full, the full catalogue. And uh, because the, Dave Reedy and Helen Reedy were, were not wanting to continue, so um, we purchased their, their full catalogue. And with that came, came the classic school days and back to school. And at the time, I remember Dave Reedy said to me, well, you know, we've already put it out on budget because uh, Elite had done it. I said, well, I think we could take it again and put it out and get more from it. And um, we did. We we repackaged it. We gave it a, I guess you would say, a Beano West look. And uh, we put it out at one ninety nine, and uh, it did phenomenally well. And uh, then we followed that with Back to School and that did phenomenally well as well. Well,
0: the really interesting thing I find is kind of you guys have been doing this for 30 years and you're still around. Have you seen a... Renewed interest in these like classic titles and games.
2: Yeah, retro seems to be pretty hot now. Um, we've been around thirty-three years, actually. Ooh. yeah, <laughs> yeah, retro is pretty hot now. Uh, this, the C64, is it the mini? Yeah, that came through. Uh, you've got obviously lots of, um, as we say, uh, uh, Sinclair Spectrum type retro uh, machines coming through, some are successful, some of them are uh, are are falling by the wayside, whichever, but quite clearly they're hungry for for titles, and uh, in addition to that, uh, you are seeing certain games that are appearing now, I would say Escapists would be a classic example, which seems to be going back to a retro feel, and there are other games as well, that ilk so, uh, you know, I think uh, Retro is back in a, in, a big ta- in a big way and hopefully we can, uh, you know, we, we can basically uh, benefit from that.
1: What, in your opinion, made School Days such an iconic title?
2: Oh, it was a brilliant game. I mean, the fact that, uh, A, you could walk around and do what you want, you didn't have to actually play the whole game uh, from getting Task A to Task B to Task C game over, you could wander around. It was one of the first sandbox games. Mm. And uh, I think, obviously, kids at the time used to enjoy chalking strange things on blackboards and things like that and changing names of teachers, and, uh, that, as the case would be. And, of course, it related to, to, the, to the people who were buying the game. I mean, they were at school, the vast majority thereof, and you were playing a game called School Days and uh, it, within a school environment, clearly. Uh, so, yeah, uh, it, it ticked, a lot, ticked a lot of boxes. And, uh, you know, I, I thought the game itself was well ahead of its time.
1: Yeah, and I think you made a really good point there because... The kids that were playing it, you could do all the things in the game that you really wanted to do at school, but you know you couldn't get away with you get detention. So Absolutely. that was yeah. always good.
0: Yeah, I couldn't have shot the maths teacher with a pea shooter.
2: A <laughs> catapult? <laughs> no, no, you couldn't. No, you couldn't. If you did, you—I don't think you'd have been at school very long.
1: <laughs> well, you mentioned the uh, the sequel there, Back to School, as well. I mean, what was kind of the uh, the thinking with that then to to expand on the original?
2: Well, uh, Back to School obviously was what uh, what Dave Reedy and Helen Reedy had done. I mean, they'd followed up School Days with their own sequel. Mm. And uh, I think they brought brought girls into it, as the case
0: was. There's a girls' school next door, wasn't there?
2: Paley. And uh, and, and that game, obviously, was a logical logical, uh, progression, I think, from school days. And uh, people loved that game. In fact, some people preferred it to uh, school days. But uh, I think the Guardian, the Telegraph, uh, did uh, some research on a matriculture relatively recently, a few years ago, and they put school days and packed a school in the top top 10 British games of all time so you know it's, uh, I th- I, we're not alone in thinking they were great
0: so when you originally thought we're going to kind of remake school days were you worried uh, that you might ruin a classic and you have to kind of really handle it with care uh,
2: there is an element of that, yes. Uh, we were going to go down a particular route, and then we got talking to a development team that were uh, based in Spain, and uh, they had got a, a game concept together, and we looked at that, and we said, well, you know, let's, let's run with this one. So we thought that the, if we are going to revisit school days, the first instance ought to be uh, a retro homage to the originals. And that is what I think we've achieved with Reschooled.
1: Yeah, because with those games, I mean, not only are you updating the game itself, but also it's people's memories as well, isn't it?
2: It is, it is. And uh, obviously, what we're finding is that people are buying this game so they can play it on modern day devices, uh, you know, rather than going through uh, the, the painful process of uh, trying to, you know, get a Spectrum game to work on XYZ. Uh, although, you can buy the game as an original Spectrum game uh, with an emulator on, the, on iTunes. But, uh, which is all licensed by by ourselves, but effectively uh, you know we thought you know people would want to play the game and remember it from the from their you know their heady days when they were young, etc, and they can uh, enjoy it again
0: well you 've introduced different levels as well, like new school and yeah. school rules and stuff so how how interesting was it during the modern schools
2: well the uh, the idea was we would just we would put out uh, the game school days. Uh, we would then make sure that alongside it was back to school, and uh, we thought, well, a third game in there would be good. Something, something uh, in the same vein, the same keeping the retro feel. So we created new schools, spelled deliberately wrong, and uh, as as like a third op, a third game within the game, so to, so to speak. So we felt that if we did all those, we gave people the originals but revamped them, and we uh, we gave them a new modern modern feel and look. And then, in addition to that, we also give some added ex and added extra. I another game. Then hopefully that would um, you know that would sell.
0: And it's kind of added massive uh, longevity into the game because you can complete each one you now. Yes. And it's still a budget title as well. Actually, it's a really good price point.
2: It is. It is. Uh, we, again, we we thought we wouldn't put this out at a higher price point. We would put this out at a, at a reasonable, affordable price. And uh, hopefully, people would take it. Uh, take it, and uh, you know we would sell. We would sell uh, several units to Vetta Commerce.
1: Yeah, the thing is, when you're doing remakes, I mean, some of them work, some of them don't. But I think with this, you kept all the charm of the original game as well, which. Um is really important, and the fact that it's kind of got that pick up and play element of the original—you haven't got to sit there like a lot of modern games for like eighteen hours and complete every bit of it. You, you can just explore and have fun with it too. So,
2: yeah, too right, too right. Exactly what we wanted to achieve. Actually, that's exactly what we wanted to achieve, and it would appear from the reviews that we're getting is that people uh, think think likewise as well.
0: And uh, having little elements like the uh, rainbow stripes in the menu as well—that yeah. kind the of spectrum, of, <laughs> yeah, totally <laughs> triggers nostalgia.
2: Yeah, and the will fan is a. Uh, there's even a spectrum noise in there as well, which we put in as one of the sound effects.
0: <laughs> oh, so people will hear that and suddenly be transported back.
2: <laughs> yeah. I think uh, even if you've never played School Days before, uh, you know, and you've never heard of it quite clearly, a sizable chunk of people will, visit, will, be, will fall into that sector. You'll still enjoy the game because uh, you know, it really will appeal to, uh, to, to new as well as old.
1: We get that when we do retro gaming events and shows. I mean, you often get, like, dads there with the daughters and sons and showing them the games that they played on and introducing, like, a new audience to it as well. I guess there's quite a lot of that in it, too.
2: It is. I mean, when you think about the games that we were doing uh, back in the 80s, etc., um, you didn't have the capabilities to produce all the fantastic graphics and almost, you know, uh, create a cinema effect you really were dependent upon the playability of the game. That was all you could really fall back on and the addictiveness of it. So, you know, consequently, those games are, uh, are hopefully, uh, and would appear to be the case, coming back in one way in so much that, you know, they've got that, um, oh, I must have another go feel.
0: Well, now you can actually play it on mobile, so you can play school days in school. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what were the challenges with getting it on that kind of mobile interface compared to a, a traditional keyboard
2: yeah the uh, obviously we we had to come up with a way that people could could basically move well could move about in the game i the, the we had, we've got like a dummy joystick actually on screen for the mobile versions and uh, we've got like a, a graphic of a fist so that when you're hitting things you see that see that element that come up and uh, to get the idea of going up and down as well, had to, we had to come up with well, I think it, I think with a way that really works. Actually, if you do, if you do actually play the game uh, on mobile, you'll see that uh, that dummy joystick in the corner, which uh, which basically uh, helps.
1: Well, you were talking before about these kind of new platforms, like we've got the Spectrum Next and you know the C sixty four and stuff like that. Mm. Um, I mean, are there any plans to put it on like these new platforms, these new retro platforms?
2: Uh, we haven't thought about that yet. With the original games are out there, of course, on those platforms yep. which we've put, we've have licensed. Uh, I think it would be an opportunity, obviously, that we would look at in the future to put them out there. Uh, yes, it all depends on the um, operating system of those particular machines.
1: It yes. still it still blows my mind that you can walk into Argos now and buy a new C sixty four though.
2: <laughs> yeah, and the little it's, it's a cute little thing as well. Yeah. You know the fact that it's uh, it, it looks like a Commodore sixty four, but obviously it's sm- much smaller version. Uh, obviously, you have, you have to connect a keyboard up to it, but uh, to, to get the full effect. But uh, you know, it's uh, it, it's a little. It, I've got. I'm actually staring at one now. It's it is very very attractive uh, item.
0: So, have you seen um, kind of other companies coming through at the moment? Because we know Hushin Consultants have started doing a few things, and you know, it must be interesting, kind of seeing a, a, a spectrum scene emerging again.
2: It is, and I, and, uh, I hope it, uh, it establishes itself uh, to, to such an extent that we can bring out more and revisit our back catalogue, uh, even you know, in, in more in depth, shall we say? Uh, yeah, uh, there's Houston out there. Um, I think uh, I'm trying to think of others, but off the top of my head. But I mean, we've been around 33 years. I think we're the longest independ- established independent British software publisher.
1: Yeah, it's a long time, 33 years.
2: Yeah, it is. Tell me about it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, how do you find it differs today? Distribution's hard, if
2: anything, uh, because uh, there are fewer retailers. So uh, the competitive nature out there uh, used to be the fact that, you know, if a new release came out, if you were a retailer, you had to have it. Uh, You know, it literally was. If you didn't have that new release in and the the shop down the road did, you would lose customers. But now there are, very, you know, there are very few high street stores uh, uh, around in comparison to, to, to the years gone by.
0: You mentioned your back catalogue there as well. Would there be any titles that you particularly want to remake or you know, upgrade?
2: Yes, there are, there are several I would like to put out there. Um, some of which um, you know, your, your uh, listeners may be aware of. There was a game that we put out called High Steel. I'd like to bring that out again. Uh, one of my favourites. I'd like to revisit some of the uh, uh, children's games that we put out there and uh, get those out into the uh, into the modern world again. Um, there's quite a few actually, but uh, without going through a huge list, I mean, there's some of the titles from Microsphere, of course. Wheelie was a was a great little game, but yeah. uh, it would have to be uh, really stepped up.
1: You know, talking about 33 years of alternative software. I mean, have you still got like a lot of the original stuff, like the old tapes and computers and stuff around?
2: We've got a good selection thereof, but back in 1997, uh, we were situated in Pontefract, and our next-door neighbours, unfortunately, had a fire. Oh, no way. And what that did was it, uh, it spread into our, our units and uh, destroyed lots of our stock. So uh, we, were, we were devastated at that particular stage in time. Uh, we actually operated at one time with a, a tarpaulin for a wall throughout that particular winter. Uh, but so we lost a lot of lot, a lot of units, etc., and a lot of our um, masters and things like that. But we've managed to get, you know, to get to get back with uh, most of the masters. And in addition to that, um, obviously we've got a small smaller selection of uh, games that we previously put out.
1: Yeah, I was going to say it must be interesting looking through those archives.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, every now and then I'll, somebody will remind me of a title, and uh, I'll pick it up and think, "Oh yeah, have, I, have we still got a copy of that?" And uh, I'm then to find it and think, "Gosh, I remember that the years when we were doing that." I'm staring at a title now, "Trapdoor," which we we, uh, oh, yeah. we acquired from Prana and Don Priestley, and uh, through the trapdoor and trapdoor, and uh, th- that was a fantastic title.
1: Well, Roger, you know, we can't think of any other company in the UK that's been around for 33 years in the gaming industry. You know, one of the, the fastest-changing industries in the world as well, so it is testament to Alternative and you that you've managed to change with the times and you've got such a loyal fan base as well, and long may it continue. I hope so. Fingers crossed. Touch wood. And if people want to keep up to date with you then, you have you got
2: a website, you're online, all that kind of thing? Yeah, we have our website, of course, at www.alternativesoftware.com. And uh, we obviously now, well, well, we're still publishing games. Um, we, the latest game, as you pu- picked up on, was the uh, Retro Homage, uh, s- School Days Reschooled. Uh, we have our rugby titles uh, as well. Yeah, we've got uh, rugby union team manager, rugby league team manager games out there in the marketplace. In addition to that, we, are, we do have some console games that we work in conjunction with an Australian company. we put those out as well. And uh, we are... We, we do have several PC titles in development now that we hopefully will have out before, the, before Christmas. In addition to that, uh, we, are, uh, we do have mobile games coming through as well.
1: Excellent. Well, I'll put a link to your website in our show notes if you want to check out your catalogue, what's happening at the
2: moment. Yeah, please do. And uh, we, have, we have Facebook pages for most of our, our games as well. And in fact, there's a Facebook page for school days.
1: Well, Roger, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for
2: coming on. Thank you for the invite. It's, I've really enjoyed it.